You're listening to Living Healthy Longer by the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging. When I teach a class on aging with my undergrads, I have them start by thinking about stereotypes that they've seen in the media, like on TV shows or in movies that they have about older adults or just the aging process in general. Like when you buy a birthday card for someone who's just turned 30, there are all these, you know, different images on the card, right? And when you think about what images come to mind, a lot of them are really negative. They're things like, people who are frail and senile and sick and really not living their best life. And so what's really interesting is that in the field of lifespan development, which is where I got my degree, you know, gerontology was a relatively newer idea. There was a lot of focus on childhood, right? Because that's like where the exciting things happen in a pretty short period of time. And so when gerontology was emerging in the 1970s and 80s, You know, they also operated on these stereotypes and assumptions that everything kind of goes downhill. Uh, And that seemed to be true of social and emotional aspects of aging. That seemed to be negative. People assumed that people were depressed and lonely as they got older. And so researchers started to design intervention programs that they wanted to get people to to participate in, to make new friends. They thought older adults are, are lonely and depressed. Let's help them and let's help them meet new friends. And it turned out that this intervention program, um, so this is an anecdotal story from uh, Professor Laura Carstensen over at Stanford, who's just an eminent researcher in the field and just such an influence and a powerhouse. You know, she was looking into designing this intervention and it turned out to not be so successful. A lot of the older adults were not interested in making new friends. And so when they interviewed these people and wanted to ask, you know, what's going on? Why aren't you excited about this program? It turns out a lot of people were saying, you know what? Yes, it's true. I don't have as many friends as I used to have, but the ones who are around for me, you know, I'm really happy to spend time with them and I'm very satisfied with what I have right now. And I'm not interested in making new friends. And so this became sort of a revelation. It was like, wow, everything goes downhill with aging, except for maybe the fact that maybe social and emotional aspects of our lives might not be so bad. And so Laura Carstensen actually trained my graduate advisor, Susan Charles. And so this was sort of the lens by which I've been really focusing my career and thinking about, of course, potential positive things that come with aging, like these social and emotional parts, but also taking in the idea that we have to understand there are declines that happen with aging, the physical and cognitive components. Um, And so understanding the nuances of how these things kind of intertwine and go together um, have really helped me to really just better understand why social connection is really important. You're hearing from Dr. Gloria Luong an associate professor in the Department of Human Development and Family Studies here at Colorado State University. Dr. Luong is an expert when it comes to social and emotional development across the lifespan. So we brought her on the show to talk specifically about the impact of relationships and friendships on healthy aging. When we think about well-rounded aging, we often think of our diets, fitness routines, getting enough sleep, But how often do we think about the energy we put into our social networks? In this episode, Dr. Luong talks to us about the difference between social isolation and loneliness. 
why being alone isn't exactly bad for you, and why the quality of your friendships matters more than the quantity. We also talk about how daily routines and stressors change with age. I hope you enjoy. I'm your host, Hannah Hallisker, and this is Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging at Colorado State University. Okay, well, Gloria, thank you, first off, for this conversation and for agreeing to be on the show with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, so you're finding in in that anecdotal story that older adults are pretty rooted in the friendships that they have and they don't necessarily feel like they might need more. Is that like a common trend, you would say? Yeah, you know, what's interesting is at least based on the studies that are out there. And now there's been, you know, a pretty large body of literature at this point. But yes, that seems to be the case. And, you know, it's fascinating because, like I said, you know, our social networks actually tend to start shrinking in our 20s already. So I know for a lot of people that sounds a little bit depressing, but maybe on the other hand, the upside of that is that although the quantity of our networks decreases, the quality of our networks actually seems to increase. And that could be one reason why, you know, people aren't so bothered by it. There's this idea of the social convoy model. That's just a jargony way of saying that, you know, some of the most important social ties that we have kind of carry on with us throughout life. And so they follow us throughout life. And and those are the ties that that really bind, right? The ones that really make the most sense to really cultivate and, and to keep um, maintained. So... Obviously, social connection is important, but can you tell us, you know, what are some of the psychological or emotional benefits of carrying these friendships throughout lifetime? Why is it important that we should have friends? It's important on a lot of different levels. You're talking about psychological and emotional benefits, and there are certainly those those that we see, right? So we see that people tend to be less depressed. They feel less lonely, less anxious, uh, more socially connected, of course, if they have more social ties, but also better quality social ties. And it doesn't just influence our psychological and emotional health. It also affects our physical health, our cognitive health, as well as mortality. We see that people who have better quality social relationships live longer. So on all these different levels, it really makes a lot of sense to uh, think about our social relationships and make sure that we're paying special attention to them in the same ways that we might, you know, make sure that we're eating a healthy diet and, you know, taking care of ourselves in terms of our physical fitness and exercise. You know, this aspect of our lives is also important too. What about the flip side of it? What about people who, as they get older, they're finding that they're more isolated and they maybe don't have someone that they can call if they want to have a conversation or someone they can go out and, you know, have dinner with? What are the effects of like loneliness as we get older? Those are really great questions. And maybe before I answer that question, I'm going to get a little academic on you and just differentiate how I think about, but also how I think a lot of researchers are starting to think about social isolation versus loneliness. Uh, I think, you know, in our everyday lingo, they're very similar. But when we kind of differentiate them more, we can see that there are some important differences there. 
So social isolation is what it just sounds like. It's being physically alone in some space. And, you know, during COVID times, we saw that, of course, people were spending more time physically alone. On the other hand, though, loneliness is a little bit different. It sounds like alone. <laughs> and so it sounds like being alone, but it's actually, if we think about it in a way of not having our social needs being met, then this is a little bit different. Then we can think of loneliness as, you know, what are the deficiencies in my relationships with other people? And everyone has very different social needs. For example, if you're more extroverted, you might be more likely to want to go out and go to parties and mingle and meet new people. And so COVID probably hit you a lot harder and in different ways because you couldn't go out and do those things like you used to do. On the other hand, if you were more introverted um, and you're okay with just having quiet game nights over the internet with your friends um, or, you know, occasionally texting them, then maybe COVID didn't have the same impact on you. And so we can have social needs in all these different domains, whether it's, you know, having enough uh conversations and interactions with people. It could be how much support do you need from your partners or intimacy or, you know, all these different aspects. And so if you think about what you need and then think about, are those needs being met? Uh, loneliness is about having those needs not being met. And so if we look at the differences between those two, we can see that for sure, Loneliness has a much stronger impact on our health and well-being than the social isolation piece does. Um, but both of them have been correlated with poor physical and mental health. Right. And so I'm curious, you know, one of the topics that we heard a lot about in the last year with COVID is older adults in like long-term care facilities. And, you know, those facilities had very tight restrictions when COVID first came out and, you know, they couldn't have visitors. They were talking to each other through windows whenever they did have visitors. And so do you have any specific, you know, research that you've focused on older adults kind of in that scenario and, and what that sort of social, social isolation might have felt like or the effects of that might have been? Mm -hmm. I haven't personally done that kind of work, but some of the emerging research, and there's just a smattering of it because COVID was such a recent thing and it's still unfolding, that we're still starting to learn about that. But some researchers started to look into creative ways that older adults in these long-term care facilities could try to connect with loved ones. And one of the ways was through social media or through these, you know, um, you know, these video conferencing call apps and things like that. And just the, the three studies that I'm aware of showed that those seem to be promising. Older adults who use those apps tended to say, you know, at least having some connection, being able to see the videos of the grandkids was helpful. Um, and other creative ways of getting in, in touch with people was beneficial. So I think there's there are ways that we can still connect with people that don't have to be face to face. Um, and I think that, that that is really important. And I'll say on the flip side of that, you know, COVID, we, we tend to think of all the negative and bad things that came with COVID. But as I start to think about my own anecdotal experiences, but also what we're seeing in the literature and the research so far, it seems like it was a mixed bag. For some people, they seem to thrive during COVID and other people, not so much. And um, in one study that Kira Burdett, who's the lead researcher over at the University of Michigan did, 
we did a study where we were tracking people over time. These were older adults over the age of 65. And we wanted to look at what their daily lives were like, whether they were spending time with other people or were they spending time alone. And when they were spending time with people versus being alone by themselves, uh, what were their emotional experiences like? And we found out that for people who have these more conflictual networks, like they tend to get into arguments with people, they felt like people didn't really have their backs, the more time they spent with those people, unsurprisingly, the more negative emotions like anger and sadness that they felt. On the flip side, if they those same people who had these like just nasty networks, if they spent more time alone, they actually didn't feel as bad. And so that goes to say, you know, that maybe spending a time time alone isn't necessarily bad if we think about how are people spending that time and is it giving them like some reprieve from being around these caustic people who are constantly getting on your nerves, right? So so there's there's that to be said also. You're making a really great case for why we should expend some energy to, you know, really cultivate who is in our social network. <laughs> that is absolutely the case. And and just going back to Laura Carsonson, because I love and admire her, her work so much, you know, she pioneered this theory called socio-emotional selectivity theory. It's a mouthful, but essentially what it boils down to is this idea that as we get older, we might be one of the only organisms on this planet who is aware of our own mortality. We know that we're going to die someday. And so that really shapes the way that we live our lives. When we're younger and healthier and we think we have a lot of time left to live, we're going to pursue different goals and hang out with different people than when we think, you know what, I'm getting kind of older. I might not have as much time left to live. I should really cherish the time that I have and really make every, every day count. And so based on this theory, we see that she believes that maybe we spend our time a little bit more um, effectively when it comes to cultivating our social relationships. We say, you know what, there's that annoying coworker. I don't really need to spend time with that person when I get older because I only have so much time. I'm going to spend it with people I really care about. And so going back to that original study that I talked about, it's it's the case that, you know, it seems like people purposely call out, you know, problematic partners as we age. Of course, it's impossible to do it completely. We have blood ties and obligatory ties that we need to hang out with or spend time with. But whenever it's possible, yeah, it seems to be the case that if we have the power to do so, maybe we should consider that, that the quality of our networks matter. And maybe it's okay if we don't have too many network partners that that bother us. It's that wisdom you get as you get older. That's <laughs> I right. Know, I know. I, I just remember being younger, being a teenager, and you care so much about friendships at that phase of life. That's right. And then right. You, you get older and just naturally it becomes more about quality over quantity. That's right. Yeah. And just being able to have that balance, I think, is just so helpful. You know, I think um, that's where we see for sure a strength of aging when it comes to looking at different kinds of stressors that we might experience in our lives. The ones that have to do with more interpersonal things like getting to arguments with people or disagreeing with them about something, older adults do much better 
in terms of dealing with those kinds of situations than than with other kinds of situations. So navigating those kinds of, of stressors, it seems like it's it's something that we get better at. And and maybe based on what you just said, you know, part of it has to do with we don't care as much about other people's opinions of ourselves as we get older. We've already kind of started to define who, what our identities are and how we feel about ourselves. We don't need other people to tell us that. That's great advice. Great yeah. advice. So I do want to get more into your research on daily stressors and daily experiences, but I do last, last question on, you know, social, social isolation versus loneliness. I'm wondering if you have anything about the physical aspect of social isolation in the sense of like when you're socially isolated, you're also, you're not hugging people. You're not having any physical intimacy with someone. And surely I know that has to, there has to be some kind of effect from that, especially what we've been seeing over the last year with people having to be in quarantine. Yeah, that's right. So if we think of like physical touch and physical contact as being another social need, right, that could fulfill intimacy, whether it's sexual intimacy or just this intimacy of like hugging someone or being able to shake someone's hand that you've just met. All of those things, yeah, are, are really important. And we know that they're related to better physical and mental health outcomes. Um, but you're right that COVID seemed to affect our ability to engage in some of those things. Again, I think COVID is interesting because it had these divergent effects on people. On the one hand, if people were, you know, kind of sheltering in place with a romantic partner that they had, then in some cases, people were reporting actually having more sexual contact and intimacy and greater, uh, you know, physical touch than they did before. And on the other hand, it's probably these more peripheral partners like strangers and, and more casual friends that people didn't get to see as much that, that kind of suffered in terms of that kind of physical touch. Um, and, you know, there was this one article that was talking about like touch deprivation um, that was occurring, um, especially among younger people who found themselves to be single during COVID, making it harder to date and <laughs> during this time. And so, yeah, those are all really important things to consider. So you might be getting more physical touch from a close romantic partner, but but less so from strangers. And yeah, a recent study just published, I think this past month, showed that um, um, actually, another effect from COVID was that we got to meet fewer strangers and um, and that actually strangers give us some benefits in terms of emotional benefits because many of our interactions with them do seem to be positive. Yeah, it makes me think of, you know, we've spent an entire year of not not meeting strangers like you're saying and how that's such a normal part of everyday life and we actually miss the the whole you know see a stranger in the store and you smile at them and you miss mm -hmm. those social cues and those nonverbal cues that you haven't had to do for a year yeah. and it's like a very weird scenario that we're in now especially with mask mandates being lifted and you know people being vaccinated that some of these social things that we were once so used to are now coming back and it feels very foreign to us that's right. Yeah. And I don't know of any studies that have really come out on this yet, but I've been wondering, Hannah, exactly what you've been saying. And I've just wondered, you know, this probably affects people at different ages in different ways. So for example, if you're a teenager in high school and you missed out on prom and all these really important events and 
you're still developing your social skills, like reading. Like, what does that mean? Was that a flirty smile from this girl that I like? You know, it, it's like it, it was like a year of your life where you kind of missed out on that kind of social learning. And for an older person who's kind of already developed a lot more of those social skills and can better read some of those nonverbals that you're mentioning. Um, yeah, I wonder if it might have somewhat of a, a, a smaller effect on those individuals. But, you know, that's something that remains to be seen. I, I would be curious to know what comes out of research looking at that. Right. I know we're talking a lot about the scenario of COVID and how it affected our, our social relationships. But if you had to just give like takeaways, general knowledge and good tips about social connection when it comes to like physical touch or ways to combat if you're feeling loneliness, what kinds of things would you suggest are good for just daily healthy social lives? Those are great points. I think the first one was just the differentiation that I made. I think sometimes people sort of mix up this idea of like, gosh, I've spent like this whole day by myself. And then they start getting down about that and kind of beating themselves up about it. Like, gosh, maybe I should have called up a friend and I should have tried to do something. But honestly, if you spent time alone and you're okay with it, there's nothing really wrong with that. Right. So so as long as you're OK with it and of course, to some extent, we do need people in our lives, even if we're relatively more introverted. Um, so I would say on the, the one hand, just just take a, a moment to assess, you know, what do I need out of my social life? And and is that am I OK with that? And and maybe just getting more used to the idea that sometimes we do have to spend time alone and, and that's OK, too. I think in the society we live in, we're we're you know, we're kind of biased a little bit toward extroverts, like they kind of get more of the attention and they're kind of the life of the party. And we assume we should be more like that. But, you know, there are all kinds of different experiences that are perfectly okay. And and spending time alone is one of those. But if you're in a position where you're saying, you know what, I wish I had more contact or, you know, I wish I had more intimacy. There are a lot of different ways that, you know, you can connect with people remotely, right? And now that, like you said, mask mandates are lifted and we're able to kind of enjoy more of that time, there are also opportunities to meet new people. Um, Meetup.com, for example, lets you connect with people who have similar interests um, and just getting out there. And, And again, kind of, I try to take the mindset of when you meet new people, there's always that possibility of being judged and evaluated. Um... But to the extent that you can try to say, you know what, I, I know what I have to offer in this relationship and I'm sort of happy with myself, um, that can help to sort of buffer some of the insecurities that might come with meeting new people and, and putting yourself out there. That's fantastic advice. Thank you. So we're talking a lot about social well-being, but that's just one of many things that you research in your lab. You're also involved in emotional well-being, and I know you have some cultural differences when it comes to these kind of factors that you study too and daily experiences that affect health and well-being. So I just wonder if you can maybe talk a little bit about the other research that you're doing in your lab. Mm-hmm. When you put it that way, it sounds like I'm just, I've got a grab bag of stuff, which (laughs) sounds great. Um, But in a way, maybe in my own twisted mind, it makes sense because when we think about social relationships, like I said, they're sort of this double-edged sword. They're positive, but they can also be really negative. And what's really super interesting about social relationships is that when you look at the kinds of experiences that we can have in our daily lives, 
some of the most positive experiences, like let, let's take a step back. If you think about one of the best memories that you've had in your life so far, I'm willing to put a hundred dollars down that it had to do with other people. And if you're trying to think about like the worst experience that you've had in your life or one of the most negative memories that you've had, I'm also willing to put some money down that it probably had to do with other people. So we know that social lives are really strongly interconnected to the emotions that we experience. And of course, the emotions that we experience can lead to different kinds of mental and physical health outcomes for us. And so that's kind of how I see them being connected. But I also like to pay attention to the fact that everybody's experience is unique. And that's why I try to better understand how do these processes change with age, but also, you know, culturally, how are they different across these different contexts? You know, I've had the opportunity to grow up in California and then move to Germany. Um, and as an Asian American, got to live in a, a context where it's, it's a bit more collectivistic than sort of what we might see in mainstream American contexts. And so all these different lenses have different ways of viewing social relations relationships, um, but also emotional experiences, like that it's okay to express emotions in some ways and in some cultures and not so much in others. And so that's why I'm so fascinated by the cultural aspects of it, that that can really also help to shape how we approach our relationships, how we approach our emotional experiences. I love it. I love it. So you mentioned how those these processes change with age. So can you maybe get into what are some of the trends that you see with daily routines, daily experiences, stressors that we experience as we get older in older adults? Yeah, so this is another area where I would say there's good news. If you're reluctant to think about aging, you know, this is one thing that seems to get better. So on average, as we get older, we experience fewer stressors. And that's a good thing because we know that stressors lead to negative emotional experiences like if you're experiencing anger and your blood pressure is rushing up and your heart rate is increasing, your palms are getting sweaty, and you're repeatedly experiencing that over and over, there's this belief that that could wear and tear on your body over time, right? You're causing a lot of undue physical stress on your body as well. So we see that those kinds of stressors change. And like I said, you know, especially like work stressors when people retire um, with work comes you know, having to be in contact with people you didn't necessarily choose to be your coworker or your boss. And so that's one area that we see um, changing and interpersonal stressors also seem to decrease as we age. And like I said, part of that has to do with the agency of the person that they choose to spend less time with them. Um, but also the case that you know, other network partners might also treat older adults better. So there are a lot of really interesting things that happen. And our daily routines become a little bit more predictable. And in a way, that's that's a good thing. For some people, they might think that's boring. But actually, it's a good thing because from day to day, you know what to expect um, and that you have more agency in controlling what your hour-to-hour -hour experiences kind of look like. Um, so, so that's kind of what we're seeing in, in daily life. And what we're still trying to to unpack is, you know, this idea of like, do we really get better at managing our emotions and our stressful experiences as we get older? And here we're, you know, we're finding mixed findings, if, if we will, right? On the one hand, 
there are some situations that really stress older adults out um, when you put them in novel situations or when you make them do a cognitive task. In a, so that's a life domain where people might be thinking, oh gosh, like I'm primed to think about dementia and like, ooh, do I have Alzheimer's, right? And that can really stress people out, whereas younger people are really not thinking about Alzheimer's at all. Like if they miss a couple math problems or they don't remember a few words on a test, no problem for a younger person. Um, and so we're really trying to unpack, could it be different kinds of stressors that older people get better at because they have more life experience in those domains? But is it also the case that, you know, maybe there are certain strategies that we learn to use better as we get older as well? Um, and so we're trying to better understand, you know, when when the balance tips in favor of younger adults doing better in terms of emotion regulation, and maybe those have to do with the more cognitive side of things versus older adults where experience outweighs, you know, some of those vulnerabilities. I love to hear that. And what it's making me think of is, you know, I would never equate myself to the wisdom of an older adult. I'm definitely not there yet, but I'm 26 and I just finished graduate school last year. And so this is like this past year has like been my first year of like, okay, so this is what it might be like for the next, you know, 10, 20 years or so. And for so long there, like a good chunk of about eight years, I had no idea where I was about to be in six months. Like I could not predict anything. So much of my life was changing depending on like schooling and what my internship was going to be and where it was going to live. And so when you mentioned that like daily routines become more predictable and that might sound boring to me, that was just like, oh, thank you. Thank you so much. I now finally <laughs> right. know. And it was such a relief when I finally got to that point. <laughs> yes, yes. And congratulations on finishing <laughs> grad school, by the way. That is no easy feat, especially during a pandemic. So, yes. Thank you. Yeah. But that, you know, it's funny that you bring that up because that's exactly the experience that I like to share with my students when I talk about, you know, these shifting time perspectives. Like when you're younger, you might put yourself through, like if someone said, okay, you're going to go through several years of grueling experiences where every week you have to turn in essays and take exams and you're going to just be constantly evaluated and feel like you're not good enough, but it'll pay off in five years. If you said that to a 25-year-old, they might be like, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. If you said it to a 75-year-old, right, like, would you want to take that deal? They might be like, you know what, I'll pass on that, right? And so, you know, that's something that we do. We put ourselves through these grueling, stressful experiences with the idea that it'll pay off in the future. And, um, and of course, it makes sense at different stages in our lives to take on different challenges. Yes. I laughed at my professor when he told me that in college. And, and he was like, this is all going to be worth it one day. And I'm like, is it though? <laughs> and here I am. And it was. <laughs> Great. Well, that's good to hear. Yes. Yes. So we're getting about to the 30 minute mark. So I want to go ahead and ask you this last question that I ask everyone on the show that I mentioned earlier, which is, you know, from your perspective and what you research, what is your best advice for healthy aging? Yeah, what a good question. So it sounds like a lot of other people have already said social connection. So I'll shift it a little bit. And I'll say that, you know, our mindsets matter so much more than we might realize. So the way that we might approach life, our goals, what we want, 
uh, that is so important. And so how we view aging is also incredibly important, whether we think that we have a lot of control over our ability to shape what we're going to look like 10, 20, 50 years from now, um, for better or worse. I think that's that's incredibly important. And there's so much research coming out. One of my dear colleagues, Manfred Deal, has been doing some work looking at how just our attitudes toward aging, whether it's kind of more positive or negative, or if we feel like we have more control over that also seems to be related to better outcomes. So people have better cognitive health, better physical health, better mental health. And I don't know if it's one of those things where you wish it and you will it and then it happens, or if it's the case that people who are already faring well also just tend to like think about aging in a more uh, positive way. But whatever it is, I still can't emphasize enough that the way that we think about things is is very powerful. That psychological aspect of, you know, how am I approaching this stressful experience? How am I approaching my emotional experiences is so powerful. So going back to our theme, you know, if you're feeling socially isolated and alone and you're feeling like your needs aren't being met, what what is your mindset about that? What what is your approach to just think, you know what, I guess this is how life is going to be and I'll just suck it up and deal with it? Or are you thinking, okay, like strategically, what are the steps I can take to really, you know, plan out like how I'm going to meet new friends or further cultivate and and really deepen the relationships that I have? If I'm not happy with the intimacy I have with my romantic partner, how can I work through that with this person? And I think having that kind of mindset will go a long way when it comes to healthy aging. That's a fantastic answer. So, Gloria, this is probably like the third time I think you and I have been involved in the same yeah. you know, conversation. You're one of our panelists on our Aging Across the Lifespan seminar. And uh, every time I just listen to you talk, I could just listen to you all day. Oh. I, I just hope I just want you to know that you're you're such an eloquent speaker and you, you the passion for what you study definitely comes out whenever you oh. talk about it. So Yeah, thank, well, thank you. you. Yes, and thank you so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. This has been so much fun. You'll notice that this is a two-part episode. Next time, we'll talk with Peggy Budai, a nurse practitioner at UC Health, who came up with an inventive way to combat social isolation when residents in long-term care facilities were unable to visit with family members during the pandemic. Stay tuned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Center for Healthy Aging at CSU. Remember to follow us on social media at CSU Healthy Aging and visit our website at healthyaging.colostate.edu. We will see you next time.